Kia ora koutou, I'm Nick Tuki, the Department of Conservation's Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Nick Tuki tēnei. Ke konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. This podcast is an opportunity for us to share some of the work done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the miscellaneous experts in between. Today on the show we have the Dark Knight himself, Colin O'Donnell. Kia ora Colin. Kia ora Nick, call Colin O'Donnell TNA. Uh, yeah, I'm Colin O'Donnell, um, I'm a Principal Science Advisor at DOC. What does that mean? Tell us about that. Um, well, at the moment I have responsibilities to oversee our research programs on threatened species and ecosystems. So I get to think about just about every threatened species there is uh, and what sort of work we need to do to solve the problems behind it. She's a big job. How many threatened species have we got at the moment? Um, well, there's about 8,000 species on the list at the moment. So those are things that we've identified. <laughs> so there, there's more out there too. So you're gonna, this is a job for life then? It's definitely a job for life. <laughs> uh, one of your specialties that you're a little bit famous for in nature nerd circles is bats. It might surprise New Zealanders, some New Zealanders, to know that we have these couple of species of bats in New Zealand. Can you tell us a little bit about the different species we have here? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is really surprising. Like Lots of people say, what, we have bats in New Zealand? And I say, of course we do. And um, we've got two species which have the kind of inspired names of is the long-tailed bat and the short-tailed bat. Um, they're known as peka peka to Maori. And um, they're threatened species, so uh, they used to be much more abundant than they are now. In fact, some of the Maori stories talk about them being around the forest in their thousands and thousands and all over New Zealand. So there's nothing like that now. And uh, most of them are sort of hidden away in really remote forest areas. And, and they're not, you know, when we think of bats in New Zealand, I suspect many of us who've, you know, gone and had a holiday on the Gold Coast or in Queensland tend to be thinking of those big fruit bat flying fox type jobs that hang out of the trees and, and fly in and out of the city at dusk. They're not like that at all, are they? No, no, our bats are kind of really tiny little things. They're just literally the size of your thumb. Um, although if you see them at sunset, you know, uh, they do look bigger because they're like a huge kite. Um, with a tiny little body stuck in the middle. So they're quite cool things. And what is special about our bats compared to, say, other bats around the world? Well, they're our bats, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess from a a kind of scientific, ecological, evolutionary point of view, our short-tailed bats in particular are one of the oldest lineages of bats that are known. So, you know, you can go back 20 or 30 million years with a short-tailed bat that's sort of similar to what we have now. And they're particularly weird for lots of reasons. One is that they run around on the ground to feed a lot of the time. And so they're not spending all their time flying around catching little insects in the sky. They've also got a few other things like um, they can fold their wings away specially so that they don't get all you know ripped and torn while they run around on the ground. Yeah, they kind of yeah. tear around on their elbows, don't they? Like, yeah, yeah, and they run elbows. incredibly fast. So, um, yeah, they're really agile on the ground. And they also run up and down the tree trunks and, you know, dig for insects and the sort of limbs and stuff like that. Why do you think bats have been missing from the, you know, New Zealand kind of general public conservation psyche for so long? 
get bats all over the world and we all know about bats and we've all been kind of scarred or indoctrinated by sort of um, some of the stories about bats. So it's not really a surprise. Um, although we don't see, see them around our towns and cities. Like, you know, the first time I saw bats in the real was when I was at a pub in the UK once upon a time, you know, you have a pint and you see these bats flying around your head and I thought that was pretty exciting. But so you don't see that here now. Um, I mean, they used to be in our cities, but they disappeared, you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. What is it that has made them disappear? Um, well, the same old reasons why most of our threatened species are in trouble, really. Firstly, habitat loss. I mean, our bats, uh, well, when I first started working on them, I thought I'd find this cave down in Fiordland and I'd, you know, be able to study them in the cave and find out what was happening. I found out straight away that they lived in trees, <laughs> little little cavities at the tops of, you know, 30, 20 or 30 metres up a beech tree sort of thing. You've been kind of keeping an eye out for bats for quite a long time, she says, trying to be polite. Uh, I'm saying I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying you're very mature. Uh <laughs> What uh, what was it that kind of sparked your interest? What made you decide that while everybody else was off chasing kakapo and all the k-birds, that you were going to focus on these things nobody had really had heard much about and didn't know where to find them? People talked about them a lot in conservation circles because we knew that they were endangered, although kind of nobody knew how to find them or how endangered were they or where were they endangered. So it was kind of like a fascinating mystery and... You know, it's really like partly about challenges too. So how do you find a, a little bat that's the size of your thumb that's flying around in the pitch darkness and remote as Fiordland? You know, it's kind of like an impossible thing to... Living 20 to 30 yeah, metres up a tree. Exactly. So there's a challenge side. But, um, I mean, when I got really interested was when we were working down in Fiordland. Um, Graham Elliott, Pete Dilks and I have been working down there for three years on how to control stoats doing stoat trapping trials to increase numbers of uh, mohua and parakeets and things. We were just walking along the road in Eglinton one night. We decided to lie down in the middle of the road because it was really warm. <laughs> well, it was quite, kind of relaxing. And um, we were just staring up at the sky and as the stars were coming out, and we saw these bats just flying up and down the bush edge right above us. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> and it sort of made me realise, well, this might be the place to actually try and catch and study them because you know first find your bats to study is the the first step yeah it must have felt like you were chasing a ghost for a little while there yeah um i it's, i think i was really fortunate the time i came along is that there were all these technological developments that made it easier so um I mean, the, the radio transmitters that you put on a kakapo weigh, you know, 30 or 40 grams, or I don't know what they weigh, but they're great big things that weigh a lot more than a bat. So the, the radio transmitters were just getting small enough so that you could put them on a bat. So if you could catch one in the first place, um, you could put it, one of these transmitters on and figure out where it goes and what it does and where does it live and what it might be uh, threatened by, really. And how do you catch them? Uh, well, we originally we use mist nets, which are, a, a sort of a net we use for catching birds if we want to catch those and put transmitters on it, flying birds. Um, the trouble with bats, our bats, is that they echolocate. So, you know, they have a sonar system like a dolphin or a whale. Or a what, submarine. Or a submarine, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's another story, actually. Um, anyway, uh, the we put up these nets at night in the places that we were seeing the bats. 
And the trouble was that the bats just flew around them, or if there was a hole in the net, they'd fly through them because one of these mist nets was like a brick wall to them. Oh, so their echolocation can pick up something as fine as a... As a, a really fine net, yeah. Wow. But, I mean, if you think about it, so, okay, our long-tailed bats can feed on sandflies, which is a good thing, um, but they can be flying around in the forest at 40 or 50 kilometres an hour in the pitch black and catch something the size of a, a, a sandfly. So they've got amazing navigation skills. Um, you know, after that, somebody told me about these things called harp traps, which were invented in um, the 60s. And they're, they're kind of literally what they suggest. They're just a big frame strung with very fine nylon like a harp. Yeah. And you put one of those up on a flyway, and somehow the, the configuration of the, the lines confuses the echolocation calls. So the bats can still detect them, and most of the time they go around them. But every now and again, one says, what's that strange thing in front of me, and bangs into it. And they just slide down the strings and into this catch bag. And so that's how we, we catch them now. Yeah, I have to say uh, that one of my, I think it's my favourite, my favourite conservation experience ever was catching bats in the central North Island. Uh, and first of all, you know, just, well, everybody thought I couldn't do it because you have to be quiet, don't you? You have to be quiet for like ages while you're listening for the the clicks of the, the bat detectors. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, having these tiny little bats in your hand. And then once we'd kind of extricated the bat from the net, uh, and we wanted to catch another bat to put transmitters on. Somebody put it in a tiny little calico bag and said to me, here you go, tuck this down your shirt. <laughs> and I remember sitting under a tree in the dark in the mist with a bat tucked in my cleavage, for lack of a better word, thinking, wow, this, this beats a kakapo on your shoulder any day. <laughs> well, the, the thing about bats is that they have this thing called torpor, which means when the weather's cold or there's no food around, they lower their body temperature. And so when, if it's a cold night and you have them, um, you've caught them, say, to put a transmitter on and they, they get a bit cold, they start to sort of basically go down into this sort of little hibernation mode thing. And you really need to warm them up so that they can fly off again. Uh, when it comes to finding the bats, so I know, you know, we've got, we've got radio transmitters, uh, we've got bat detectors. I know a lot of community groups now are using bat detectors uh, and as the technology has grown how has that helped us find where bats are around the country um oh enormously because we have automatic remote bat detector systems you know in the remotest parts of new zealand now and we can answer questions like are there bats there and what species are and what habitat they're living in but um sort of 25 years ago it wasn't quite that good but um i mean i didn't know a thing called a bat detector even existed and <laughs> I guess, you know, New Zealanders don't know about the bat business, really, or at least didn't then. Um, and a German tourist on the Milford Road told me, oh, why haven't you got a bat detector? And I thought, what's a bat detector? <laughs> It'll save me, you know, looking out in the sky and walking around the dark a lot. Um, so a bat detector is just, and again, it's kind of just a small handheld device. So um, it converts the high-frequency echolocation calls to an audible click. And so you can hear these click, 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 click sounds as a bat flies around you. And, I mean, that was really inspiring to me because I walked along the road and I heard all this clicking around me and I couldn't see anything. I thought, wow, there's bats flying around my head at the moment. <laughs> so yeah, was, and you don't even know they're you there. you just don't know they're there. You couldn't see them or anything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before that, you know, electronics being what they were, if you had, you know, 
a truck size bat detector suddenly became a handheld bat detector. So that's good. And cheap. Like, uh, gone from $10,000 to $100 sort of thing. So. Yeah. I, and I'm noticing um, particularly communities now involved in predator-free projects are starting to use trail cameras to de- to detect pests and other wildlife on their, on their trapping kind of programs or their trapping trails at night. Um, but in the last little while on social media, I've seen people starting to pick up what seems to be bats in areas where we probably didn't necessarily think they were before and more bats around urban environments. Do you think people in urban areas have any idea about the bat populations around them? Oh, I, I probably most people wouldn't know. I mean, it goes back to most people not even knowing we had bats. So, um, yeah, there's not that many urban areas where you get them, and there, but there are a few. Um, they, are, they are on the outskirts of Auckland. They are on the outskirts of Hamilton, for example. Geraldine. Geraldine is another place. The best place to see them is actually Stewart Island at Half Moon Bay. Along the, there's three or four street lights in front of the school, and they the bats fly backwards and forwards along there, feeding every night. So that's a great place to see them. That's um, it's not all good news though, is it? When it comes to bats, I mean, first of all, we should probably talk about the greater short-tailed bat, uh, mm. which is a very recent extinction in our conservation history. What happened there? Yeah, so the the greater short-tailed bat was a a much bigger bat that used to be all through New Zealand and really common based on the amount of bones and caves around the country. Um, when um, And people suspect the Kiori was, rat was responsible for its um, demise on the mainland. They, they persisted until the 60s on some islands down off the southern end of Stewart Island, so the Titi, southern Titi Islands. The Martin Bird Islands. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, Unfortunately, rats got to those islands in about, I think, the early 60s. And so by 1967, the last sighting was seen, and those bats were probably killed, or most of them by um, predation from rats. So so predators are the big modern threat um, to all the, the bat species. Um, rats, stoats, uh, cats, and possums all have a go at catching bats, so... Um, and a lot of my when I started working um, quite a while ago in South Canterbury like about we sort of went around asking people for bat records and sightings and like about a quarter of the sightings were people saying oh my cat brought in a bat Mm. last night or some other time so um, yeah and that's just in your work history yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and not to mention you know a pretty recent extinction within the last 50 years yeah yeah. Let's talk about cats, uh, because the the infamous um, bat cat story would was the one in near Oakuni, wasn't it, or Rupehu, where one cat. I, I remember at the yeah. time the ranger kept finding little ripped up bits of bat wings beneath a bat colony. That's right. Yeah. So that was on the side of Ruapehu. Um It was a very long way into the bush. So you know, many kilometres into the bush and at high altitude where there's this known big old red beech tree with um, which used to have thousands of bats in it. And uh, they figured out in the end a cat was just sitting there catching them as they were coming and going and eating them, eating some of them, but leaving others just just killed them or played with them and stuff. Yeah. In the end they caught it and after that they know it had killed at least 110 bats. But those are the ones they, they picked up, you know, the remnants of the wings for so yeah you know so that's just one individual predator having a huge impact on a bat colony in one week in one week yeah 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 
And and I don't, yeah, we we tend cats got fly feral cats fly a bit under the radar, don't they, in terms of predators in the New Zealand environment. We don't like to talk about cats because we don't want to upset people who've got pet cats. Yeah. But a feral cat is a, a, out there kind of taking out nature like that all away from, you know, all at night yeah. under the cover of darkness is something we probably do need to talk about a little bit. Well, we do, yeah. I mean, yeah, these feral cats are definitely a threat not just to bats but to a very <laughs> wide range of wildlife, really. So from some of our threatened invertebrates and birds as well and lizards, like the major um, predators of our lizards. So Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I used to work in Otago with some of those giant skinks and, and we saw the impact they were having there. And I guess the last thing I would say to round that off is feral cats don't have a very nice life. The, the ones that I experienced earlier in my career were all starving, diseased, fighting. Mm. It's, it's not a moggy cuddled up by the fire. No, 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 no. These are quite different animals, really. Yeah, no way, no way to live, really. Uh, if we go back to the bats, people have all kinds of wacky ideas about bats and maybe Dracula's got a bit to answer mm. for. <laughs> um, but it, it's a common misconception that bats hibernate over winter. Um, can you explain, we touched on it before, but can you explain what's actually happening to the bat when in those cooler temperatures? Yeah, so I mean, I don't think any animals really hibernate the way that we kind of anecdotally think about it, like go to at the beginning of the winter, you go to sleep, and then at the end of the winter, you wake up, and that was it. Um, so the bats, they use a thing, it's called torpor, and that's where they can lower their body temperature right down to just above freezing. And like when they're in deep torpor, they will take one breath every five minutes or so. Wow. And that's a way to conserve their body fat through times when there's not much food around. Um, but it's very much temperature dependent. So they can do it in the middle of summer when it's, if you have a really cold night or in southern New Zealand, say you might have a snowfall, late snowfall at the end of November or something and have a cold week, they'll, they'll all go into this torpor mode then. Um, same way as during the winter, if it suddenly warms up and insects are flying around, they'll all wake up again and start flying around and look for food. But of course in winter, on average, it's much, much cooler. So um, they tend to sleep most of the winter. But bit like uh, a scarfie in Dunedin. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I went to Otago. <laughs> anyway, they, um, so they might, if they go to sleep into this torpor mode, like once every sort of... Um, 10 days to two weeks, they will wake up. They'll probably stick their noses out into the environment and say, oh, is it still cold? If it's still cold, they'll just go back to sleep for another two weeks. And then, so I guess in the autumn, they start putting on a lot of fat and a, a little um, thumb-sized bat will suddenly look like two thumbs, those <laughs> little rot rotund things. And that fat's meant to get them through the winter until the following spring um, if there's no food. So obviously the New Zealand bats have a real sensitivity to the temperature around them. And one of the things that I know we're all becoming increasingly concerned about um, within the within the department is impacts of climate change on threatened species. Yeah. What does um, climate change mean for a species as ancient as the you know, New Zealand bats, for example? There's sort of various scenarios, actually. Some could be good and some could be bad. And... So if you end up with warmer winters and there might be more food around and, you know, maybe that's good for them or you have an early breeding season or a longer breeding season so that the young, you know, have plenty of time to get raised. So 
there's, that's on one side of the equation, but the other side is a bit more disturbing because um, by the same token, if you get woken up more often in winter, but there's not enough food around, then you'll run out of fat before spring comes, and that will could increase mortality. And we've already actually seen a bit of a signal in that in our overwinter survival um, sort of studies. Really? So that's kind of scary. But I guess the scariest thing is an indirect thing, and that's about having more predators around, because with warmer winters that we are experiencing, and we have measured those, we end up with um, beech um, trees seeding and flowering and seeding hev more heavily, and therefore having more frequent predator plagues. But more importantly, over the overwinter survival of the rats might um, also increase. So with these our predator control operations, we rely on knocking them down in the summer and then the winter knocking them down further so that by the following spring there are very few rats left in the forest, for example. But as things are getting warmer, the rats aren't dying you know, in the really cold conditions and therefore they enter the following spring ready to breed in much higher numbers. And that, of course, is a problem for bats and many other threatened species. Yeah, that's right. And um, I mean, you hear anecdotal reports around the country just through community groups this year alone in terms of the the number of rats people are seeing through winter. Yeah. Some of that will be a little bit observer bias because a lot more people are tuned in to... Yeah, and talking about it. So talking about see it. Them, yeah, yeah. But, but some of it is probably true. Well, certainly, I mean, we've been measuring it in Fiordland and, you know, every year... On average, the temperature, winter temperatures are warmer for the last 25 years in the time that I've been measuring it. And the rat numbers are sort of increasing steadily in, that, in the wake of that. So, And if you've got a colony of torpid bats tucked in for the winter, mm -hmm. then it's basically like a fast food joint for rats, isn't it? Exactly. If you're sound asleep, at, like to raise your temperature out of torpor might on a good day take 15 or minutes or half an hour I mean all a rat or a stoat has to do is go in a cavity find some deeply sleep, sleeping bats and it's like opening the fridge at home so food for ages that <laughs> is cool. terrifying do, can you tell me a little bit about the, the kind of predator control work in the project and the benefits in terms of the Eglinton Valley over time yeah sure so uh, as I said earlier like I've been doing it for 25 years the first you must have started when you were 12, Colin. Oh, I must have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eight, I think it was. <laughs> but um, so the first years, like probably the first good 10 years were spent figuring out what the problem was. So, you know, first we had to work out how to find the bats and then study them. And then it took a very long time. It's like piecing together a jigsaw in slow motion, you know, finding out little bits of information as you go. But the result of that is that we were monitoring the bats and each year the numbers were getting lower and they went had these big drops in numbers which coincided with the predator plagues that followed beach masting. And that's a, we know that for other you know, birds and wildlife as well. And so once we'd gathered that information, which probably took about 10 years, uh, we could then start to saying, hey, this is a problem, we need to try and reverse this decline because... Like the long-tailed bats down there, they're class classified now as critically endangered. They were declining at a rate of about 5% a year. Wow. That was quite dramatic. And so, you know, after 100, 150 years of predation, they're just sort of reaching the bottom of that curve where they're starting to head towards extinction. 
So they definitely had to do something about it. And that's when we started to do predator control experiments and then monitor the response. And I mean, I guess now it went from a phase of being quite glum and depressed about, you know, the future of bats. But we've been doing predator control for the last 15 years and we've the numbers have been steadily increasing since then. So that's really exciting. Um, the short-tailed bats down there, we found those in 1997. We thought there was probably about three to 400 there then. And um, over the last 15 years, the numbers have increased to well over 3,000. We actually don't know how many there are now, but um, a couple of summers ago, the team out of Tiano counted them coming out of one tree with infrared video cameras, and they counted over 3,000. So that's incredibly exciting. And the same, the long-tailed bats, they live in much smaller colonies spread through the environment, so they're a bit harder to follow. But the three study colonies we have down there have increased in size by about fivefold as well. So one of the colonies, which I, is at Walker Creek in the Eglinton Valley, the one that I've been studying the longest, that went down to just 24 breeding females in about 2,000 following several of these rat plagues. Uh, and then last season it was up to about 120 breeding females. So that's really exciting stuff from my pers perspective. That must make you feel very good about getting out of bed and coming to work every day when you can see results like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, the message though is that it's all long-term work. You don't, you don't see it overnight, So, but I guess also keep faith and keep working it, you know, keep trying new ways to control things and and keep at it over time and you, you'll see some really good rewards. Well done. Uh, I have a question for you that is completely unrelated to any of this and relates to tequila. <laughs> Can you please explain to us what bats have to do with tequila? Well, um, all the tequila drinkers out there have got bats to thank because <laughs> um, tequila comes from this plant, blue agave, and the only pollinators of blue agave in the world, the natural pollinators, are bats. So um, if we didn't have bats, there'd be no blue agave. And that's the case with, um, I mean, a lot of bats pollinate flowers and disperse seeds. And, and so, um, you know, I read a study a few years ago where um, cacao, cocoa production was increased by 20% by bat pollination. Um, bananas, you didn't ask me about bananas. So again, the natural pollinators of bananas are bats. And I mean, these days, all the the, I guess the, the bananas that we see come from clones and things like that. But um, if a disease took out all those bananas overnight in the world, then um, we'd need the bats to bring them back, really. Um, it's that, it's a, such a great point you raise, and it's something I'm tucking away in my brain to uh, explain to my neighbour who loves tequila. Can't yeah. wait to tell <laughs> that story. But... Um, the, 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 that bit about nature's contribution to people or mm. ecosystem services, we so often forget that, don't we? And earlier this year, I read um, one of the international reports that said 75% of all our commercial crops, so all the food we eat, mm. is pollinated by animals. Yeah. And so the minute we lose those, we're basically starving ourselves, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. And the, a lot of plants only flower at night, so that... You know, it's, the plants know that there's these bats out there, and that's the thing. Bananas and 
um, the tequila flowers, you know, opening at night with really nice nectar in them to attract the, the bats into them. So. And in New Zealand, of course, we've got our very special flower of Hades, or Dactylanthus. Oh, is that what you call it? <laughs> I thought it was called the wood rose. But. It is called the wood rose, <laughs> uh, which needs the bats just as much as they need it, right? That's right. I mean, it's a parasitic flower that comes out of the ground. It sort of lives on tree roots. It's a zombie flower. Is it? Well, it sounds like one. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, again, the bats are the natural um, pollinator because it has this incredibly rich nectar, and they just sort of wolf it down and, of course, pollinate the flowers, and then they move to the next flowers and pollinate those. But there's other plants in New Zealand that do similar things. Just uh, a tree like koi koi has the, its flowers come out of the, the tree trunk and the inflorescence, so it's out, hanging out in the open, and that's an adaptation to bat pollination. Um, so there's, you know, it's not just the dactylanthus. That's really interesting to hear. I, I want to talk a little bit about as we're seeing more bats around us and as we start to kind of cross boundaries with bats in New Zealand, uh, one of the most um, terrifying uh, facts I've heard recently is to do with what happens when bats interact with wind farms. So wind farms are great, right? Everybody wants yeah, a wind yeah. farm because we want Sustainable clean energy. energy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the problem for bats when it comes to wind farms? Yeah, unfortunately... Um yeah, globally, you know, there's obviously lots of wind farms and people have been identifying for quite some time uh, lots of dead bats under wind turbines. And it is a global problem that turbines can kill bats. And for a long time, people thought, well, the blades are, you know, striking the bats and killing them. But it turns out to be a much more interesting and complex story than that. Um, so, it's, I mean, what happens with wind turbines is that they heat the air and insects like warmth, and so they get attracted to them. And the bats get attracted to them and feed around the blades. And that, there's a Canadian study where they use thermal imagery where you can see the bats actually flying around the curve of the blade catching insects. In and, the warm kind of the, yeah, microclimate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, again, the bats have amazing you know, skill, I suppose, with the echolocation. Um, and they know the turbine blades there, and they can fly around it, even you know, however fast the blade is sweeping down. Um, but the problem is a thing. Uh, the problem is that the blade, at certain wind speeds, creates a change in barometric pressure. And if the bat's flying around the blade at that time, pop, it explodes on the inside from the change in pressure, and it's not funny for the bat. No, it's but, not um, funny. It just sounds outrageous. Yeah. Is it like when you dive too deep and you get the bends and you explode? I, yeah, I don't know about that, but it's called. <laughs> I mean, it's called barrow trauma, and yeah, so, it'll be something like that. So, um, I mean, what people are starting to do though is figure out are, are there bats at my wind farm, and then curtail the activity of the turbines at the times the bats are there. And overseas, especially in Germany, they're starting to put. Um, bat detectors actually in the turbines themselves and they figure out the conditions when bats are most likely to be there and they basically program the turbines to switch off when the bats are around. So it's actually not an insurmountable problem. It's a problem certainly in New Zealand we really haven't thought about until recently and hopefully we'll end up with lots more wind farms in New Zealand in the future but we need to firstly place them in places where there aren't bats and there's you know, there's a hell of a lot of New Zealand that doesn't have bats in it. So 
um, you know, think about putting your wind farm in the right place. And then if it is a batty place, then figure out ways of identifying when the bats are there and, you know, turning the turbines off for that period of, of time. You've been able to track bats all over the world. And in fact, Colin and I share an office and this is a constant source of contention for me because Colin goes to all the places I want to go to in the world, um, including you've been to Mexico, you've been, you recently got back from Madagascar. What, what's been one of your strangest moments tracking bats in the field? There was another time on that trip where we'd been trapping in the forest, the rainforest at night, and we went to check our traps. And when we were walking back along the trap, there were fresh tiger prints in the mud along the track that we'd just came along. Wow. And that, so that was kind of a bit scary sounding, you know, seeming. Well, that, that would be enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, an, another time we were working in Mexico in the caves, and, um, you know, there's lots of different bats in those caves. And... We were sort of crawling through these spaces and all of a sudden I put my knee in this like red jelly, I think it was. It looked like a big jelly on the thing and it was a bit gross. But then I sort of looked up above me and above me were six vampire bats. And of course this jelly was their um, excretion from eating blood. And that, but they were quite amazing looking bats. You know, they were, look, they were looking at you, you know, really intelligently and following you around and stuff. So that's kind of creepy but but vampire bats are only two species that drink blood out of 1300 species in the whole world so still a little bit terrifying yeah a little bit i was making like a little bit throwing up in my mouth faces then <laughs> i think there would be enough bat hunting for me if i saw that so vampire bats are probably the reason that people get the heebie-jeebies uh, around bats yeah and it's created a bit of a pr problem right I mean, we take out people in Fiordland um, every year, and we usually have about 50 people come out over a couple of nights to see the bats in the Eglinton Valley. And I'd swear that at least a third or a half are a bit, you know, sort of nervous about it. They just think, ah, I'm intrigued because of the vampire thing and all that. I'm really intrigued. I'm going to go along, but I don't know if I'm going to look too closely. I'm definitely not going to touch them. Um, Anyway, we go out and we put some traps up as part of our normal routine work. And I'd swear that, you know, 99.99% of people just love the bats once they see them. Uh, there's been so many times when people have looked in the bat trap and say, but where's the bat? Because <laughs> I'm thinking of there's this huge, ginormous, monstrous thing in this trap, but they just see these little brown, cute, fluffy things running around in them. And again, you know, once you put a long-tailed bat in your hand, you know, you'll be in love with them forever. I Look, I entirely agree. I think, you know, we're a bit short on supply of small, cute, furry things that belong in New Zealand. And having had a short-tailed bat in my hand, yeah. in fact, which then ran up and perched on my head, <laughs> that was it. Bats were my totem. <laughs> what is something that you wish more people knew about your work, Colin? I mean, I think the first thing is I'd like to take everyone in New Zealand to see a bat because then they'd, you know, they'd be sold. Most people would be. Um, and, yeah, just to see how, how nice they are. Uh, I'd like people to understand, you know, the role they play in our ecosystem. So we talked about pollination before, but they're also a natural insecticide, so they control um, they can control insects. I mean, they love sandflies. They love mosquitoes. Um, but they also love uh a couple of their favourite things are grass grub beetles 
and piranha moths, which are big agricultural pests in New Zealand. So if we could bring you know, the bats back to our agricultural landscapes, then they'll be doing a, a, quite the service. They'd be the farmer's yeah. best friend. So, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, what On that note then, what is it? What is it that we could each do? What could New Zealanders listening to this out there do to help contribute to the survival and the thriving of bats in our landscape? Well, I guess there's, there's a bunch of things that people could do. I mean, one is about awareness and just understanding what we're trying to achieve and to support the work that gets done in the big forest tracks with the predator control and so on. But of course, in the places where you have bats closer to people or in small reserves, then, you know, doing the local trapping um, in your place is a really good thing to do. Uh, people have been experimenting a bit with artificial bat houses, so we have lost all the cavities in the trees to try and um, put up artificial houses to attract them. Now that's sort of more a research question at the moment because we don't know what sort of house to build to attract them and, and so on, but you know, these are experiments that people can do you know, almost in their backyards. So. Colin, you, I could listen to you for days and days and days about bats, and that's only a fraction of the threatened species work that you do for Doc. Uh, I just really want to thank you for coming in and sharing all your cool stories. I'm definitely taking the tequila one away. Thanks, Colin. Cool. You're a Nick. 